The scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul. Thank you, Cindy. Uh, apparently, I got the wear maroon memo today. Um, Yes, we live in the same household, but, no, but, but yes, we also leave at different times, but so we, we had to coordinate that for... <laughs> uh, hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm David, pastor here at Current. Uh, I hope you guys are getting excited for the, for the season. I know a lot of you guys, you know, when it comes to work or your studies, this is really the time where it all ramps up, so we're thinking of you, praying for you. In fact, let's, let's do that now, and then we'll, then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the season. Thank you for... Uh, the message of joy and hope that we celebrate, if, if not uh, overtly, at least under the surface culturally, but as a church, just we just we just sing your praises. We th- we thank you for sending your Son into this world to be with us and ultimately die for us, Father. It's in Him that we place our hope as a church, as people. And uh, Father, would you just go before us in this season? I pray especially for those who, uh, you know, when it comes to the holidays, it's a little bit harder either with uh, hanging out with uh, family dynamics or, uh, or remembering those who are no longer with them, with us. Uh, there's any number of things that can be going on. You know the heart. You know each of us uh, intimately. Lord, would you, would you minister? Would you work in our lives? And Father, as a church, would you help us lift out Jesus as the hope and peace that is offered in the gospel and indeed in the, in the Christmas message? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been here over the last few weeks, uh, I hope it's okay with you. I've, I've skipped over a little bit in the Christmas story, some pretty important parts of the narrative, including, well, namely Jesus' birth. Maybe we should start with a spoiler alert. You know, Jesus was born. Um, but we're, we're, of course, saving that for next week when we do our, our big celebration. We kind of have our, our, our fun time uh, looking at that story a little bit more in depth. But today, we're jumping over and we're looking at the story of Simeon and continuing this theme of looking at the beautiful yet subversive message of Christmas. Uh, the, you know, this, the beautiful... Uh, part of Christmas we see every year when the nativity scenes come up, when the songs are sung on the radio, and, and so on and so forth. But the subversive part of the Christmas story is something that we don't necessarily always see, or maybe even have ever even saw or, or realized to begin with. Uh, that's here in this text today. Uh, we have this, this much lesser known story of this, around the first Christmas events. A man named Simeon, who in his older age in the temple court, saw the baby Jesus coming in and ran over there, it says, felt, feeling prompted by the Holy Spirit, took the baby into his arms and gave a blessing and gave these words of prophecy. And in his words, we see something, words that are incredibly beautiful, as we also see words that are incredibly subversive. 
uh, he starts with what we would probably expect. Verse 29, Sovereign Lord, you have promised, uh, as you have promised, you, have now, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I think that's what we would expect. That's the Christmas story we all know, and we, you know, it's parallel to a lot of the ways that we celebrate. This idea of Christmas peace, it's there. But then Simeon goes on and says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I can only imagine being Mary in that moment. And just thinking, boy, that took a turn for the south. It's like, where? thank you, Mr. Prophet, you. Like, all right, good to know a sword's going to pierce my soul, apparently. Uh, these words are subversive, and uh, they're not what we'd expect. They're, they're upside down, but ultimately they are about peace. Uh, a wonderful peace, a peace like the one Simeon is experienced, a type of peace that even in the face of death, he has joy. He can say, even death can't hold me, type peace. Christmas is about peace, and indeed greater peace than we would ever dare hope or imagine, but what we see here is how that peace enters into the world, how that peace enters into our lives. And what we see is peace enters through conflict. Peace enters through discomfort. Peace enters through pain. Um, So we're going to unpack that a little bit as we look at Simeon's word. Like a surgeon who needs to use his instruments to make cuts and incisions so to, to, to bring wholeness and healing, so too God needs to work in our hearts and in our lives to bring about his ultimate peace. Um, what, what do we learn from Simeon's words? We'll, we'll jump right in looking at verse 34. Uh, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, he said, and to be a sign that will be spoken against. What we see off the, off the top here is that it's impossible to be neutral towards Jesus. Uh, he's going to be a sign spoken against. He's going to be destined to cause some to, to, to fall and some to rise. It's impossible to, to be neutral towards Jesus. If you read any of the accounts of Jesus in the Bible, any of the biographies we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll just see all over the place that he's making it really hard for you to make up your mind about him. He's making it impossible for you just to remain neutral about him. If, if you come to him on his terms, you either accept him or reject him. There's no middle ground. Um, and, you, and, and one of the ways we see this is just all of these claims that he makes are, that are just so infuriating. Jesus was always making these claims that were just infuriating everybody. Do you notice that when you read the, the text? People are constantly just like, what do we do with this guy? He's ruffling their feathers time and time again. So a few weeks ago, we looked at that story of the four friends who brought their paralytic uh, buddy, uh, and they, they, they carried him a long distance to get to Jesus, and the crowds were so dense that they had to concoct a plan to go up onto the, onto the, the, the roof of the building Jesus was preaching in. You remember the story? And so what they, they did was they burrowed a little hole, they lowered the guy down on a mat, set him right in front of Jesus, and Jesus said, you are healed. No, he didn't say that. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. We talked about how the friends would have been like, wait a minute, Jesus, I want my money back. It's not what I came here for. I want you to heal this guy. But more importantly, we didn't have time to really focus on this. We talked about it in part then, but to just to kind of focus on it now briefly here, what really got people upset, what was really interesting about that story is people got really upset at what Jesus was saying there. The crowd didn't know what to do with that. Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, hold up, Jesus. The religious figures in that crowd they started looking for stones 
because they wanted to start stoning Jesus, crying, blasphemer. Only God can forgive sins. And yet Jesus was claiming that very thought, that he is God. That, and he, doing it all nonchalant, by the way. Um, that could be very infuriating if you hear that and if you really understand the implications of what he was saying. Or to, how about this claim? When he was talking to one crowd, a crowd that was already, by the way, kind of agitated, kind of hostile towards him, he went ahead and said, before Abraham was born, you know that patriarch that, that everyone, everyone still does, reveres, before Abraham was born, he said to that crowd, I am. Want to guess what the crowd did that day in response to that? They started looking for stones. It was kind of Jesus' thing. He'd say stuff, and people would start looking to stone him. Or how about this doozy of a claim? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or the claim that he, uh, embracing the title King of King and Lord of Lords. And by the way, that's not just saying, uh, you know, he's King and King and Lord of Lords of some nation or some nations. That's a claim about him, him having authority over each and every person, over every life and heart. Uh, that's enough to infuriate you, I would think. Uh, why? Because you can't remain neutral about him. Um, our culture, it seems to me, especially so in the Silicon Valley, it's especially uh, uh, magnified here in, in, the, in the Silicon Valley, we, we're a culture that we want to be our own rulers, aren't we? That we control our own destiny, our own purpose. So therefore, if, 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 boy, if you, if you truly wrestle with what Jesus actually said about himself, he takes aim at that. Um, you can't remain neutral about him. You know what makes this only worse, by the way? And I'll put that in quotation marks because it's depending on your perspective here. You know what only heightens this matter of it being so infuriating in terms of his claims that you can't be neutral about him is that he lived such a darn good, attractive life. You realize that? I mean, Jesus was making all these wonderful claims, but if he was a nut job, then it's like, fine, dismiss him. Who cares? Like, we wouldn't even think about him. But he lived such an attractive life. He was always out there just loving people so selflessly, caring for them. And you, you just have to see that and say, okay, that doesn't ma- match up. If he's, if he's making these claims but living this life, what do we do with that? He was constantly winning people over that we would just think would be the last people won over to his case. So, for instance, the group that would end up killing him, the religious council that would end up uh, getting him crucified on the cross, out of that a group, came a man one night, this is in John 3, late in the night, because he didn't want to be seen from his, his buddies, that camp, to see Jesus. And he came to him and he said, this is Nicodemus in John 3, Rabbi, we know you've come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Uh, that was Jesus' uh, deal, constantly even winning over those that you would think would be the least willing to accept him. And then there are plenty of people throughout history who claim things like Jesus, claim to be God, claim to be a, a savior-type figure, and yet nothing ever came of them. Have you noticed that there's been a bunch of people throughout history who said, hey, I'm God, start following me? Sure, they've been able to drum up some eclectic group of people, some followers, but it's always been short-lived. Nothing like the extent of what Jesus' following has become. Um, and then on the, on the flip side of that thought, we've had a number of people throughout history who, did, who, who, who themselves lived wonderfully attractive lives, similar to Jesus, but none of them ever claimed anything anywhere near what Jesus claimed. Uh, if, if they had said, you know, any of these wonderful people that we, could you imagine if Mother Teresa was like, hey guys, I'm actually, I'm actually God. It's been like, oh darn, she was so good too. Like, we're, she had so much going for her. Like, could you imagine? We would have just written her off. Jesus is completely different. Why is that? 
He could, we, he could have been written off. He could have been dismissed, but he wasn't. His claims can be very infuriating, but, you, but they're all the more infuriating because his life was so attractive. We have to decide, you and I, what to do with him, and we can't remain neutral. That's what Simeon is saying in these words when he says, he will be a sign spoken against. It's no surprise when people speak against Jesus or the claims that he's making. It's the claims that he has established. He has staked. If you want to come to Jesus and say, oh, he's a nice moral teacher, or if you want to come and say, hey, I like these teachings, I like these teachings, I like this about him, but you know what? This area of my life, I'm just going to go ahead and say I like this a little bit more. If you come to him on that basis, you must understand that Jesus doesn't exist. You may be following a Jesus of your own making. Um, and if you say, oh, David, that's just, uh, you know, a Jesus that the early church devised, concocted in hindsight to, like, you know, uh, consolidate their power and just build this movement. First of all, there's no evidence historically for that. But you still have to wrestle with the thought that this movement, these people who followed Jesus, came out of a movement of persecution, of great persecution. All the earliest Followers of Jesus, back to the very, very beginning, historically, even outside of the Bible, were people who were terribly persecuted and yet stood up in the face of death with wonderful joy and peace. Um, And I would just say before moving on too, especially to my Christian friends, I would encourage you to ask yourself, is my relationship towards Jesus right now neutral? Um, I've been there. But if it is, I'd encourage you to go back to his claims. Go to his calling, because if you wrestle truly with, with the true Jesus, uh, you, you won't remain there. You can't remain there in neutral ground. But this is the place where peace enters in. This is the starting point for Christmas, the peace of Jesus, to get into our lives. It's a deciding at, at the heart level, what will we do with this Jesus? Uh, here's what Simeon goes on to say next about him in terms of how this peace enters into our lives. He says, uh, Jesus will reveal hearts. If you look at verse 35, it says, This child destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. If you look back at verse 32, Simeon's also talking about this there. He talks about a, a, he's going to be a light for revelation. You know, a light is an imagery that we've kind of talked about kind of offhandedly uh, throughout this series, this Christmas series, because it's imagery, it's a metaphor that the Bible likes when it comes to the prophecy in terms of what Christmas is all about. A light coming into darkness. In the land of those living in darkness, a light has dawned. Now, light, of course, is only helpful, doesn't, only does any good if it enters into an unlit space. And as I've been thinking about this, just kind of musing on it very uh, briefly, um, it, you know, it's dawned on me that typically how I hear the light metaphor, I think of it in terms of, like, u- utility. I think, okay, darkness and now light. That helps me. That's good. Okay, Jesus, good. He's light. I need that. Okay, good. But think about it in terms of if you... If you, if you if you, if you push into the, the metaphor a little bit more, think about it in terms of, for instance, our natural responses when it comes to light. Think about, for instance, let's say there's a group of people who've just been in a cave for a really long time, a dark place, just, just real darkness for a long time, and a light just kind of comes on. What would happen in that moment? After the initial, like, you know, the, whoa, hey, there's light there, what would be the natural responses that we would have? Some would probably say, hey, kill the light. You know, maybe literally, actually, as I think about it, throw some rocks at it, stone the light, get that thing off. Some would probably want to retreat into the cave more. No, 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 it's too much. Can't, can't handle that. And then others would probably say, boy, this is really bright. I'm not used to this, but I want to step into it. 
I want to. I want to. This is this is a little bit painful. This is a little bit hard. But I want to. I want to. I want to see more clearly and come into focus. Jesus has a way of revealing our hearts. Um, I was talking to uh, somebody who's now become a friend at one of these uh, partner trips. I went and visited one of these churches in Texas that, that partners with us. And they don't just partner with us. They partner with a number of pe- uh, people who are starting churches all over the U.S., which is really fun. So I got to meet one of these guys who's starting a church, I believe, in South Dakota. And he was telling me about how his story, it's, it's really quite remarkable. I wish I could go into it. I'll have to share the story some other time. It's really quite miraculous. He, t- he talks about how he had been living a life with his, with his wife and his, and his son in such a way that whether you're religious or non-religious, you would, you would think that, yeah, this guy was living a, a, a life in the dark. Whether, however, your, your spiritual perspective, you would, he, according to him, he said, you would just, you would th- yeah, I was living a, li- a life of darkness. Long story short, he put his faith in Jesus. He saw the light of Jesus. And what happens now is uh, his buddies come back to him and say, hey, let's go do the things we know you want to do. Hey, let's go, let's go do these things. Let's, let's go live this life. Come with us. And he finds that there's this, this, this check in his spirit now. There's this check in his spirit to say, no, 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 I can't do that. There's this, there's, this, there's this realization, this light, if you will, of him saying, you know what, that life that I used to live, I see now more fully that it's been hurting the people closest to me. It's been hurting people even around them. It's been hurting myself. And ultimately, it's been hurting my relationship with God. And he was telling me this story, and he said, you know, I, I realized, you know, when I put my faith in Jesus, it's not like, you know, I put my faith in Jesus, and now my life was perfect. I became this holy person, and I stopped doing all the stuff I used to do. Of, co- of course not. But there came this, this moment where at the heart level, that now as I live my life in the light of Jesus, I, when, I, when, I'm, when I hear these things and, I, and I'm asked to do these things, I realize, first of all, no, I don't want to do them. But even when I end up doing them, I realize that God will help me even give his forgiveness as I try to continue to move towards him. Uh, the, the gospel of Jesus, Jesus reveals our hearts. It's a, it's, kind of, it's a light that kind of shines into our life. And it can be painful, but will we see by it? One more thought of Simeon, and then we're going we're gonna to pull these, these thoughts together. Uh, in order for the wonderful promise and peace to be ushered in, it's, he says that, that Jesus pierces our hearts. Uh, he pierces our hearts. Verse 35, and a sword, Mary, will pierce your soul too. Now, of course, if you know the story of Jesus, you know that he went to the cross, and no doubt Simeon here is speaking to Mary and talking about that sword is going to be piercing her as she watches her son eventually die on the cross. That makes sense, Okay. But think about it from this perspective. It's probably actually a little bit worse than, actually much worse than her just as a mother watching that horrible thing happen in the years to come. Because Mary, just like everybody else at that time, all of those people had been watching and waiting for Messiah, had been watching and waiting for the Savior to come, and yes, take up a sword. Take up a sword, but take up a sword against the Roman oppressors, against the political powers, and bring about God's peace that way. Um, the problem is, that's not the way Jesus came to do it. Uh, he was going to take up a sword, but the sword would be different, and the sword would actually pierce Mary's heart, not the Romans. Um, Imagine being Mary on that day that Jesus was crucified as she sat there and she watched her son up there. Imagine that day taking in not only the pain of what that meant to her personally, but also the pain and confusion of, oh, I thought he was. But wasn't he supposed to? That pain was piercing her soul. And that's not, of course, the only thing that pierced her soul. I mean, you just think about, for instance, the times when she would want to go and get Jesus' attention 
There's plenty of places where Jesus was out teaching and the crowds were around him. And there's a few accounts where Mary and her sons, that is Jesus' brothers, would go and say, hey, Jesus, we want to talk to you. And Jesus would basically say, no. Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Those are the people who do God's will. Could you imagine being Mary in that case? Now think about that. That's the kind of thing that pierces Mary's soul. But that's, in a sense, what's going to pierce you if you believe the gospel. Jesus takes stake on your community, on your purpose, on your life, on what makes you, you. He's going to take aim at that in order to bring you into a restored relationship with God, like a surgeon making cuts and incisions. Mary is lifted as one of the absolute best models of the faith, like hands down. Uh, She's amazing, and her faith responses, we've been looking at that as we've been going through the series. Uh, She's incredible, but she too had to have this wonderful peace of God enter into her life only through uh, some hardship, some pain, uh, some conflict in her life. So here, high level, and then we'll break this down and think about what this actually looks like in our lives. Simeon, Mr. Jolly, is saying, you can't be neutral about Jesus. He's going to reveal your hearts, and he's going to pierce your soul. Okay, how does that, how's the good news there? Where's the peace? What does that look like in our lives? Think about two people in the Bible. This is where this kind of helps me kind of get my head around all this. A case study, okay? Think about two people in the Bible, the disciples Peter and Judas. Okay, if you probably know about Peter and Judas, they're, they're, they're two of the main, you know, 12 disciples, the 12 students who followed Jesus around everywhere. Both of them got all of Jesus' attention. They got to see all of his miracles. They got to hear all of his teachings. They got to be equipped. They got to be sent out and do wonderful things. But one went on to betray him and ultimately led to Jesus going to the cross. The other went on to lead the church and get it off and going such that we are actually here today because of him. So the, the question then becomes, what's the difference? The short answer is Judas had his heart revealed, was having his heart pierced, but he ultimately said, I don't want that. He rejected Jesus. When when Judas spent all this time around Jesus, he got to know a little bit more about himself. He got to, for instance, see that he really loved money more than a lot of other things, caring for others. In fact, we are told that he was uh, uh, taking money off the top of what Jesus was collecting for the poor, for himself, and Judas was just saying constantly, even as Jesus talked about money and, and putting your treasures in heaven and giving to the poor, Jesus was saying, hey, that's all nice, but I'm actually going to do this for myself. Jesus, Judas was seeing his heart revealed to himself, and his heart was saying, you know what, I, don't, I get what Jesus is saying, I get what he's after, and I'm going to choose myself. And where did that lead him? Ultimately into despair. Ultimately into a lack of peace. But Peter, on the flip side, had all the same things was taught, got all of the lessons, got to see Jesus do his wonderful things. And you know what? He too betrayed Jesus. In fact, I was thinking about it this week. This is the first time it's actually really occurred to me in that, in that thought. We always talk about Peter denying Jesus, but really he betrayed him relationally, emotionally. I don't believe that guy. As Jesus was being uh, tried and ultimately led to his execution, Peter was out there denying. He was betraying him relationally. But what did Peter choose to do that Judas didn't do in that moment? Peter chose to come back and say, ultimately, when he had the chance with Jesus next, to say, Jesus, I don't have this worked out. The more I realize about myself, essentially, he was saying, is I realize that I am broken and I need help. I need you to work in my life. In other words, Peter's heart was pierced. But how was it pierced? He was seeing clearly that he was the one causing this lack of peace ultimately in himself. 
And Jesus came like a surgeon to help Peter, to help anyone who would receive it, see our need for him and receive the hope in life in him. Um, you know, it's amazing to me how he came to do this because the gospel is Jesus came to die for us. Jesus came to take the sword into himself. Uh, in, in Genesis 3, I was looking at one of the, the commentaries this week. This is a, a, someone else's insight. I thought this was a fascinating thought. In, Je- in Genesis 3, right after the fall of mankind, there, we, they, they, Adam and Eve were cast out from the garden. And what was placed there, blocking their way back in, was a, was a, was a, a flaming sword. And that same flaming sword was essentially saying, hey, you're barred. The way, the way back to an intimate face-to-face relationship with God is barred, shut. That, that's gone. Because if you choosing to, yourself, living in rebellion and saying, I want me, not you, God, there was that flaming sword. But on the cross, essentially, was Jesus taking that sword upon himself, letting that fall and cut him to pieces. Why? So that we can be brought back in. The gospel is not just Mary had a pierce to the, 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 the soul, or not just you and I get pierced to the soul as we see our need for him, but ultimately the gospel is he took the sword for us. He took the payment that we deserve. That's what the cross is all about that when we receive what he has done for us for the forgiveness of sins, we can receive life in his name. And you can receive that today. If you're not a follower of his, you can become today receiving that, saying, I, I believe, I trust. And if you are a follower of his, you know what you can do today? You can lean into that. And I can just tell you from personal experience, but also just having seen many people that I just really admire living this out, it really is the way to ultimate peace in ways that you and I just wouldn't otherwise expect. Sometimes we do need the surgical cut to help us live the life and receive the ultimate peace, the Simeon-type peace that he was experiencing is made available to us through the, the cross. Uh, we have friends here visiting today. And their story is amazing. If you were here on one of the teams, you got to hear a little bit of their story. They got to share as we gathered uh, for prayer. By the way, that's open to everybody at 10 o'clock. We, we gather around, we pray for the service pray for the church. But they came up and they shared, uh, Tom and Amanda are visiting from New Hampshire, uh, a little bit of their story. And I can't share all of it. It's amazing. He even shared just five minutes of it today. And even like the tip of the iceberg is just incredible. I can't tell you the whole story, for instance, how he woke up one day about, I don't know, was this almost a year ago now or so, eight, nine months in May? Uh, in a, he woke up from a nap uh, to the name Dave Collister. And, uh, and he said, hey, because his wife, Amanda, uh, who's just amazing, by the way, uh, who at the time had a very terrible bone cancer. Spoiler alert, she's now miraculously healed, which is an amazing story. At the time, she had terrible bone cancer. They're in the midst of trying to figure this out. They had just put their faith in Jesus, by the way, and they're trying to figure out, what do we make sense of all this? He got this name out of this, this dream. is like, I don't, I don't know Dave Collister. Amanda, you know Dave Collister? No. Well, I feel like he said, I feel like this is either a doctor or a pastor somewhere. And so they Facebook stock, that's his words. It's cool. It's all good. If God's doing this, there's no stocking. That would be like Simeon back then saying, Facebook told me to come over to you, baby Jesus, and pick him up. No, the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm joking, but that's actually true. Anyways, so he, he said, hey, he reached out. He got, got a hold of us. He said, hey, I don't know what's going on here. Um, what, what do you guys? This started a great relationship kind of informally uh, across the coast. Um, a couple of weeks ago, they, uh, Tom emailed back and said, hey, we're coming out. We just figured we'd just come out and see what God's doing out there, just, just, just be a part of things. And we got to hear that uh, God had healed 
Amanda, miraculously. By the way, it's not only miraculous that she's cancer-free right now, it is also doubly miraculous that she can walk. All the doctors were saying that wasn't going to be possible. Um, and so, and, and now they're serving, you know, a year later as youth ministers at their church. They just got really invested. You know, the most amazing, so that story is just like, and that's not even all of it, okay? You can talk to them later. It's just story after story. Like, what, really? The most awesome part of the story, if I could say that, because there's a lot of awesomeness of the story, is we got together with breakfast for them this last week, and um, they're sharing all of this. And at, at one point, I just said, you guys are filled with such joy, such peace right now. How are you able to do that? How are you able to follow a God when, you know, he brought you through all of that? And I, I love Tom's response because he looked at me just kind of confused. He's like, what do you, what do you mean? I said, well, how could, a, how could a good God allow that to happen to you? Like, how are you at peace with that? He said, whom else would we have trusted through that? He was the one who got us through. And I'm just like, there it is. There's the piece of what we're talking about. This piece that not only were they going through something really incredibly hard, in fact, they would be the first to tell you that it was precisely through these things that they've come to learn and grow in their relationship with God and get to know His goodness. Um, and that, that just mind boggles me as I even think about it. And I'm like looking at Tom and we're having this conversation. I look over at Amanda. She, she's just so quiet and just taking it in. I'm just like, what an amazing person. What an amazing model of faith. What an amazing picture of what what God calls us into. I was talking to someone else this morning uh, who recently f- lost a loved one. And they're, they're, I asked, how are you doing? We've been praying for you. And said, I'm doing great. How's that? Well, it's hard having lost my, my, my father, but we have an incredible peace. His words. I'm just like, tell me about that. He said, well, because of being a part of things here and coming back to my relationship with God, I now see that there's actually not stuff to be sad about, but only be joyful about. That's peace. Sometimes, sometimes God wants to get to us and help us understand the peace of the gospel. And it comes through conflict. It comes through discomfort. It comes through pain. Why? Because our hearts don't like the light as much as we like, might like to think that, that they do. I know my heart has trouble with that. And our hearts don't like to be pierced. But think of it this way. When it comes to the gospel, because Jesus took the sword through the heart, the sword that you and I will feel in our soul, relatively speaking, will only be a prick. And it won't be a sword. It will be a surgical scalpel to help and bring healing and life. He took the sword. He took what, what could actually bring us harm. I want to finish with these words. One writer put it this way. I, I love how this kind of wraps it up. Could you imagine if when Simeon said to Mary, there will be a sword that pierces your soul, she had replied, oh, I don't want a sword to pierce my soul. What if Jesus had said, I don't want a sword to pierce my soul. I don't want to bring peace that way. Then where would you be? Then where would I be? Where would any of us be? Don't shrink back. Follow him to peace. Let's pray.